Welcome to Beyond the Roadmap, Product Talk with AWH, a podcast for product people, by product people. Join us as experts share their experiences and expertise to help you build great products. Hi, I'm Ryan Frederick with AWH, and this is the latest edition of the podcast Beyond the Roadmap, and uh, Jema from Klarna is here with me, and we're going to have a conversation about building products specifically for developers. And Jema and I got together a couple weeks ago and, and dug into a little bit, and um, there's some commonalities between building products for anybody, uh, and then some specific considerations that you need to make in building products for developers. So Jema, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. And you sort of gotten into product through a very uh, unusual securitist journey. So talk a little bit about that, how you ended up at this point in product, caring about products and wanting to work on products for developers at this point in your career. Yeah, I had always kind of had technology as a hobby and was really passionate about apps and things on my phone and I was very passionate about apps I hated on my phone. I had a lot of opinions, but I was in school to get a degree in neuroscience and I planned to go to medical school and I just kind of thought about apps and things like that in my spare time. But then around my junior year of college, I thought, what if I turn this hobby into my full-time gig and kind of let the medical school thing go? So that's what I did. I just set out to try it. I didn't know what it was called or like who built these things and how it all worked. You were just so consumed by software that you were like... Yeah, I didn't know much about it, but I started Googling a lot and found this term user experience and then kind of followed that like down the Google rabbit hole um, and found places in Columbus whose SEO ranked them for (laughs) user experience. Um, And that's kind of how I got started. What weird stuff do you come across when you follow user experience down the Google rabbit hole? All anything kinds of anything <laughs> <laughs> okay um i might have to do that and just to see how how far it goes and how weird it gets yeah i i think what made it seem like a possible career move for me or something that interested me is down the rabbit hole i found legit research studies about user experience where people were in labs watching people use their phones. I think the first study I read was about when people hold their phones in their right hand or left hand. Like I'm left-handed phone dominant, but I write with my right hand. Um, It was like fascinating about where to put things on the screen for different scenarios. And I was like, this is really cool. And then I just kind of followed that spark and ended up at Klarna eventually. (laughs) Yeah. And so what does Klarna do? So we'll give some people some context about the business that are familiar with Klarna. Yeah. So Klarna is a financial tech startup based in Stockholm, Sweden, but they have offices all over, including Columbus, Ohio. Can they be considered a startup still? I mean, isn't the company like, you know, worth a shit ton of money at this point? (laughs) I think the last I heard they're valued at 2 billion, about, I think I heard 2,500 employees now. So yeah, maybe it's a little... uh, above a startup. So we could debate what is the (laughs) definition of a startup, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, It operates like a startup. So the operating model within the company is that all of the teams operate basically as startups and pitch leadership for resources and for funding. So every product team kind of serves as its own startup within the company. 
So that's kind of unique and why I still call it a startup because it feels very scrappy and startup-like, but meh, with 2,500 people, maybe not so much. <laughs> right. No, but that's cool. Um, so what do the product teams look like typically or if there is a typical? Yeah. Um, I'd say most of the product teams they're not to be more than eight people. So they're all around like five to eight people. One product manager, depending on what kind of team they are, maybe one marketing person or um, analytics, a designer, maybe a designer or analytics or marketing are shared between teams, but depending on what they need, then the rest are engineers building whatever it is you've set out to build. Um, and the teams are really built around a problem space. So you have to be able to answer what problem is my team solving? And that kind of determines how the team is built and funded. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about building products for devs as your customer versus end customers and end users. What is the primary sort of focus uh, for you and for the company in building products with devs as your customers? So I think this is a new focus for Klarna. The primary focus was building products for merchants at first. That's kind of how the company started, was helping e-commerce merchants have solutions for getting money. <laughs> so um, whether that's Invoice, which was the first product, or now there's Pay Now, Pay Later, and Slice It, so financing options, um, they're really focused on appealing to the merchant. They've shifted now to appealing more to consumers. So there's a Klarna app out in the Nordics and maybe some other countries, slowly rolling out to all of the markets, um, really focused on consumers and making the experience, the e-commerce experience great for consumers. But now they've kind of realized that part of the sell for merchants is making it easy to integrate and use the products. So the merchants may hear about this solution or other solutions like Klarna, Afterpay, Affirm, there's probably some more doing similar things in the market. And how do we differentiate? Well, if you can get live with Klarna faster and cheaper and easier than our competitors, then even if the offerings are similar, there's still a differentiator there. So I think that's kind of where this team lives and the problem space it lives in and is trying to solve is to make sure, regardless of our product offering, that we're the easiest to integrate with, easiest to get live with. So what are some of the challenges building products specifically for developers in a very technical, sophisticated customer? Yes. Um, there's quite a few because developers are, they have a very specific goal in mind when they come to um, like developers.clarna.com is one of our touch points and they come to the website to see documentation and they have one question in mind that they're trying to get answered. So we really have to be ruthless in editing our content and navigation and how everything works. Um, we don't have time or space to add any sort of marketing spin to anything to really big visuals that move all the text down the page or out um, as we user test. They just want to know the answers to their questions 10 minutes ago usually. So right. keeping things moving and making it easy for them to find what they need is a big hurdle. Yeah. Serving a very informed technical customer means that there's no room for error, right? Th that you you either give them the right answer in the way that they want to consume it, or it's kind of the wrong answer if they can't get to it or they can't consume it easily. 
and, and is that what you guys are sort of seeing as you're beginning to serve developers specifically as customers and to build products specifically for them? Yeah, especially if the developer is working with a merchant or multiple merchants still in the decision phase. So they're looking at different solutions and they know it needs to do X, Y, and Z. The developer might be doing some research to see which they should go with. And if he's on our website or she's on our website for, I don't know, two minutes and doesn't see that we're capable of doing that thing, um, they write us off. Even though that might be a product op- product offering or a feature that we have, if we don't spell it out and show them how to do it, it might as well not exist, which helps <laughs> when we're talking to our product teams about documenting their products. If you don't document it, it doesn't exist and all of your work is for nothing. So um, making sure we highlight all of our features and they're easy to find is is a big hurdle. And who has responsibility for that documentation and the clarity of the documentation? Is that is that you focused on serving the developer customers um, through products or is that the product team that owns the product that developers would ultimately be implementing and integrating? So the product teams have final say. I, that's how I would explain it. Me and my team, we kind of serve the product teams and give them a framework and a process to create this documentation. And of course, we review it and give feedback and user test it and tell them what we're learning. But I kind of leave it to them to decide what to publish, how they want to publish it. I make sure that it sounds like Klarna so that each page of the website doesn't feel like a different team. It all feels like it's coming from one place. So I help a lot with that. But I leave it up to the teams on what features they want to promote different markets Um, are looking for different features. Um, Like the invoice product I mentioned earlier, that's much more popular in Europe. In the US, invoice isn't really a thing. So I kind of leave it to them to tailor the content. But um, yeah, it's kind of a collaboration, but it's their product to market. So and how are you mentioned user validation. So how is it different in your experience than doing user validation with typical end user customers? versus developers as your customers and users? Developers as users, they're very smart. They've often run user testing (laughs) or been a part of user testing. They already know what it is. Um, It's not like you're just user testing with someone who's not tech savvy, who's maybe never done user testing. They're really smart, very opinionated (laughs) so far because they interact with a lot of documentation. Like every API they've ever used has hopefully been documented or they had to figure it out themselves. So they know what they're looking for and they know what they want. So it's a unique challenge, but it's pretty fun. And you get a lot of great feedback really quickly. So, And what does your team look like? What's the makeup of the developer product focused team? Yes. So me, of course, I'm in product. Right. Um, and then we have two engineers and a designer at the moment. So we're a pretty small team, but we're able to borrow resources from other teams. Um, so we've had some data help getting analytics on, uh, for example, what programming languages our merchants are using, things like that. And occasionally we'll borrow an engineer or two to get things done. But the core team's four. And w- when we chatted before, you talked about 
part of the reason to be developer focused and to get really serious and dig in around building products specifically for developers is that they become your product evangelists, right, for the merchants and the customers that ultimately are going to use the, the core products. Talk about that a little bit and, and why that's important and why sometimes the developers are sort of the tip of the spear in getting your product implemented at places maybe that otherwise um, wouldn't if, if the developer um, or the development team wasn't sort of vouching for it. Yeah. I think a good example of that are developers that work at agencies or, or consultants that work with multiple e-commerce merchants where if they have success with their first integration with Klarna and they see that it went really smoothly and it was really easy to use and the merchant's happy at the end, order values went up or conversion went up, whatever it is. Um, if they have both of those successes, they're likely to recommend Klarna as a solution to their other merchants they work with, which is ideal for us to have a technical person in the room really vouching for Klarna as a tech solution as well as an e-commerce like financial solution. So we really want every developer that comes to the site to become a promoter of Klarna and they would want to return and they would want to do the integration again because it was so easy or so fast or whatever it is. How are you sort of validating that that's happening? Um, are you doing very traditional sort of user satisfaction surveys and and feedback loops with with developers as as users to determine whether you're hitting that mark or whether you whether you're falling short yeah so um right now our primary source of feedback are the partners we work with frequently so these are at agencies and things that have used Klarna before and want to use Klarna again and we get feedback and work with them when we have new engineers join the team, they sit and watch them do the integration. Um, so we're able to get feedback that way. We have a survey going live. I don't know when people will hear this, but in the future at some point, uh, we have a survey that'll be on the website that'll pop up for some amount of people to try and just get the basic, would you recommend Klarna to your developer friends kind of feedback, but just the number or just the ranking isn't enough. And I prefer just talking to people about their integration experience. What was it like? What did you hate? And that's been really helpful. And I think we've made a lot of progress that way. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm not really much of an NPS fan because I think it becomes sort of a crutch and it can become a little bit of a hollow score uh, because it's one of those things that starts out sort of very pure. And then as humans, our tendency is to take something that starts out very pure and then to sort of bastardize it over time and it loses all of its meaning and purity. So I'm not, you know, a, a, a massive NPS fan. I would rather go to, to customers and, and users and say, tell me, and you also mentioned sort of doing the validation in the negative, mm -hmm. which is something that um, goes against human nature and that we don't do. I was talking with a group of uh, Ohio State entrepreneur students last week. I also talked about drinking too much, apparently, because in the thank you email that they sent me, they said, thank you um, for coming in and talking to us in between your bar stents. Um, <laughs> so apparently I talked about drinking too much. Um, but besides that, they one of the things that we talked about was doing validation in the negative and not just going to users and saying things like, tell me why you like this or tell me why it, it, it'll solve your problem and tell me why you value it. 
but go to them and say, tell me why this won't solve your problem. Tell me what you don't like about it. Tell me why you hate it. And whenever I talk to people about doing user validation and what I reference as the negative, they look at me like I'm a crazy person because no one is wired to do that. How did you sort of get to the point of realizing that doing it that way actually gives you the feedback that you need versus the sort of false positives of asking it in the in the positive? Yeah, um, I'm a natural pessimist, which sets me up for success. Su- success there. in product, right? Yeah, um, but with developers, maybe it's just like a self-selection personality thing. I'm have yet to encounter anyone in our user testing or interviews or anything that is enthusiastic about any documentation ever. Like what documentation do you love? If I ask that question, I'll get, I don't know. Google's Firebase is okay. It's like, that is like peak enthusiasm. Right. Um, which it's uh, okay. Right. Yeah. Like, okay. is all the better we're going to get. Um, so the developer experience team, we've all kind of taken this path forward of, we knew there were a lot of rough patches in the implementation process with Klarna products. So let's just start identifying them and smoothing out one after the other. And then eventually our documentation will be okay. (laughs) Or whatever the peak enthusiasm. (laughs) Right. Or whatever their most excited state can be, right? Yeah, which isn't super excited. So asking questions like, what do you love about this? Or it's just not with this audience and this product, it's not really... There's not an emotional attachment. No one gets that excited. So we just attack it from the other side. And if they don't have anything negative to say, eventually someday we'll know we've done it. Right. <clears throat> when they don't have anything left negative to say, then you're, you're sort of golden at that point. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, identifying where the challenges are and then, and then tackling them, you know, um, sort of one at a time and maybe in, in sort of a linear fashion. Is that true? And have you thought about or have you tried tackling things also in parallel? And why have you found if you're taking if you're sort of tackling them one at a time and prioritizing why why did that is that where you ended up and why is that better? Yeah, um, I'd love to tackle more of them in parallel, but I think I mentioned this earlier. But there's still work to be done on a cultural shift within the organization to I don't know evangelize the value of working with developers and making their experience really great. They're not a merchant, they're not a consumer, but making their experience great will still improve the bottom line <laughs> ultimately, but it's much harder to sell that and to kind of rally. It's a little bit harder around. to quantify, right? Yeah. And so while I've been making the rounds internally and pitching um, to get more resources for a while, the team was just one engineer and one designer. So when it was just the three of us, I set those two off to go solve like one after the other, each rough patch that uh, developers hit. Small, and then, a small but mighty team. Yeah, they've crushed it and now they've multiplied. So it's much easier. But when it was just the two of them, it was really hard to do anything in parallel with only one engineer. So they kind of focused on that. And I went internally and got the product teams excited about documentation and showed them user testing and what happens and what our competitors are doing with documentation and how it puts us behind and kind of building that momentum so that when we're in those startup shark tank pitches with leadership to try and get more engineers, I had all of this momentum. Um, So a lot of my time at Klarna has been as a politician (laughs) Um, and not so much just purely product managing and doing the product thing. It's more 
kind of shifting the culture and showing why it's valuable um, while the team kind of ran on each, I don't know, rough point we identified. So you mentioned sort of being a politician internally. So you've become an evangelist for the uh, developer-focused product team and why that's important. And, and is that something that you knew would be the case? Uh, is that something that you just realized, oh, I'm going to have to take this on and I'm going to have to do this as part of this role? How did you get to the point of being an internal ev evangelist? Um, yeah, so I knew that the developer experience had been neglected before I joined Klarna. Like I had seen the documentation website during the interview process and I knew no one owns so you this. So you were like, this is why you need to hire me because there's yeah. nothing here and what here, what's here is, is crap? Yeah. And the people hiring me were very passionate about it but and had gotten enough traction to hire a product manager, but not really anything else. Um, so I knew coming into it that I wouldn't have a team and there was clearly a problem here, a problem that if solved would add value to Klarna. So I knew I had a good case <laughs> once I got started, but um, I would say I probably underestimated the amount of like politicking required, but I've grown to love it as part of the product position that I'm in. This like politician type role um, is kind of fun. And I've been able to like navigate through the organization and get people excited. And it's been it's been fun. You don't strike me as someone who um, outside of doing this would would be in, in the political game. You don't strike me as somebody that would that would be you know running for office and wanting to you know be um, you know shaking hands and kissing babies. Oh yeah, that's not really my thing. But like a campaign advisor, or like kind of in the back, like making other people think that mm, my the, ideas are their ideas. The puppet master. Very much. Like, that's totally that's in your my real house. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Good. So Good. I just like to sit in meetings and like throw out some ideas and get people like attached to them, but I kind of let them run with them. Good to know. I feel very manipulated <laughs> now um, th that I'm just asking everything that you wanted me to ask um, based upon our review session before we did this. All so. part of my plan. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, well, I mean, you know, hopefully it's valuable for people that that, <laughs> um, that, that listen. Um, and if that's the case, then, um, you know, manipulate away. <laughs> Where is your team located? Because... Klarna is an interesting company, headquartered in Stockholm, U.S. operations. So there's this very um, sort of bifurcated situation and, and an international presence around the product and currencies and all those kinds of things that we can talk about. But then from an actual people perspective, it's a very virtual remote uh, setup too. How challenging is that or not, given what you've been able to maybe put in place to make it work? Yeah, um, it's definitely an added challenge. I'm based in the U.S. The product teams that make the Klarna products are all based in Stockholm for the most part. And then my team, the rest of my team is in Berlin in Germany. So for sure, an interesting challenge. It helps that I was a team of one to begin with. And then as people have joined the team, we've kind of set expectations and made the schedule work for us. So the Berlin team tends to go in the office later in the day. I get up super early, check Slack, see what's up. So we've kind of shifted and made that work. On the whole, Klarna strives to have the startup teams as they kind of function uh, co-located, but in my team's case, it just didn't happen. So I travel some and make it work. But I think by setting expectations at the beginning, like when the team started, then as people join the team, 
I like to work from home once a week. I get in the office at 10 a.m. Those sorts of expectations really help just the basics. But there's always some challenges. If I'm the only remote person in a meeting, it makes it hard to participate. Which is, again, where that, like, puppet master thing comes in. Like, have a meeting one-on-one with someone that will be in the room. Kind of sell them on your ideas so you have, I don't know. So you can advocate in the room. Yeah, that's that's kind of, like, shooting for the same thing and stuff like that um, that I've learned to work around. Yeah, wow. Um, you do not seem that manipulative and controlling <laughs> in person. Um, so this is all very, very new and fascinating. I don't, um, I don't think of it as manipulative so much as like just um, being right yeah well yeah always um i've been at klarna for a year and i don't know a half or so now so i've built relationships with people in stockholm and berlin well it's plenty of time to know everything yeah and they kind of know what the goals are for my team and a lot of times if my team's successful, their team's successful. Like if I'm helping them publish great content, more merchants are going live. They're doing better too. Um, so it's not too hard to have someone in the room that is kind of aiming for the same thing. Yeah. So let's talk about your product process within building products for developers. Does it look like a traditional product process? Are you doing user stories and job stories and building prototypes and working in sprints and all of that sort of stuff? Or is it different than a traditional, what most people might look at as a traditional product process? Yeah, I'd say my team functions pretty informally. Don't have a bunch of Jira tickets, really. We don't have a ton of user stories. We don't have like strict acceptance criteria all written out. And I think it's a function of the team being so small. So the designer was in every user testing thing they know what's going on we don't have to write it all down and we only have one engineer working on the website and that's kind of our main redesign right now is redesigning developers.clarna.com so with such a small team um, we just kind of iterate on we had a bunch of sketches we were all in person i was in germany (laughs) and we did sketches and kind of aligned right now we're iterating on navigation and user testing and kind of i don't know narrowing down what we want the navigation to look like and then they're just building it so it's been it's kind of yeah not standard (laughs) Um, especially with the time difference so they will iterate on prototypes while i'm asleep Mm -hmm. and i wake up to new prototypes and then that's pretty sweet it is it's magic and then they leave for the day around like 11 or noon hour time and then the afternoon I use our test on whoever I can find in the office because we have a lot of people in the U.S. office not working directly with integrations, so they don't really know anything. So they're great guinea pigs. And then I post feedback in the Slack channel for them to iterate in the morning and I wake up to new iterations. So that's kind of how we work, but it's not super formal. I think if the team grows, then we'll move more into a formal, like we'll have sprints and all of that. Um, but with so few people, it's just, we're all on the same page and it seems to work. Yeah. So you guys, you guys can actually iterate sort of faster than even the traditional sort of agile methodology. I, I was going to look for, I was going to try to come up with a different <laughs> word than that. Cause I actually hate that um, <laughs> word. Um, but the typical agile process, you yeah. guys are even iterating faster than that. It sounds like, cause you're actually in some cases delivering, you know, code and new functionality within a 24 hour window. Yeah. We've found that writing it all in Jira tickets just slowed us down. 
um, we were like, that just took up more time. So we just kind of scrapped that and just move (laughs) as fast as we can. And there's also a lot of freedom in that the current website is pretty (laughs) universally disliked internally. And (laughs) we're all pretty confident that regardless of what we come up with, any iteration on the current website will be better. So there's a lot of confidence that like, yeah, just go launch it. Like it doesn't really matter. Just get it live. I'm sure it's better. Um, So there's not a lot of pressure to validate exactly what we're doing right now. We're basically just like trying to make it better um, and then we'll launch it and continue to iterate. I'm sure at some point we'll have to really like get the details down. But um, right now it's just move quickly. As you um, think about the developer community and where you're going with product, do you have a roadmap and and how do you how are you sort of prioritizing things? And when you talk about the fact that you're tackling one sort of challenge at a time, how are you deciding which ones you're tackling when? Yeah. So our roadmap um, at a high level um, right now is focused on just basic hygiene, is what I've been calling it. Make sure the documentation exists for the products and that it's correct. Those were two major hurdles that we haven't even yet completely cleared that all the products have documentation and they're correct, get the navigation to a place where it makes sense on where to find what you're looking for, Uh, make sure search works, (laughs) things like that, just basic hygiene. And that's our highest priority right now and what we've been working on. And then our future roadmap looks much more about um, this building a community aspect, this community of developers. So going to conferences, getting some, developer-focused marketing resources and the team to help make sure we're, we have a presence in the developer community, have someone monitoring Stack Overflow and GitHub that when we get questions and comments, someone's responding and we're improving the documentation if we need to. If everyone on Stack Overflow is asking how to do something with a Klarna product, we should probably write better documentation. So building that community is kind of the next step, um, but right now we're still in the, the hygiene phase. Mm-hmm. And you think about building that community. One of the things that we had talked about before was the fact that marketing for sort of business development is different than marketing for um, developers. So how do you sort of see that playing into it? And how much input will you have in that to engage with marketing to drive the messaging and to drive campaigns and visibility and awareness, et cetera? Yeah. Um, so all the product teams, the actual merchant products have marketing resources, but they all generally have one person who's writing pitch decks for the commercial side of things, working on things for Klarna.com that are both consumer and merchant facing. Um, And then they're also doing documentation for developers. So it's taken some time and some iterations with those marketing resources to help kind of shape who the audience is and what kind of language to use to really like hook that audience. So it takes some time, but we're lucky in that Klarna has quite a few engineers that are passionate about writing documentation and really take pride in good documentation for the things they build. So it's worked best for us to have these kind of engineering marketing pairs, generally more than pairs, but these groups of engineers working with marketing and they kind of sit in a room together the engineers talk through how something works and there's kind of this translation that happens from them talking through the code to more of a storytelling aspect in the documentation of first you do this, then you do this, 
to get the order, you do this. Um, so it kind of works really well. There's this middle ground between engineering and marketing that is kind of the sweet spot, but it takes some work to, to find it. Yeah, for sure. And I think this sort of goes into marketing and getting the messaging right, that when a developer is thinking about implementing a Klarna product, the sort of implementation, you know, playbook and sort of the storytelling around that, right, of, of, of connecting the dots for them so that they have visibility sort of through the process, that would seemingly be an important, you know, way of, of marketing it is, is giving them that playbook and then so sort of walking maybe through a scenario uh, that they can then sort of identify and relate with. Yeah. Yeah. Examples are key in documentation. So you can talk in the abstract about how to capture an order for 10 pages if you want to, but it's a lot more successful to just show them when a user clicks on this, here's the code and here's what's happening and here's what Klarna's API is responding with. And then a user does this and here's what the API does. So you kind of tell the checkout story from both the user perspective and the API perspective. Um, and it really seems to help bring clarity for the developers of what to expect as they're building the integration and testing it and check out that when this user action happens, this should happen next. Really finding that the examples are the most helpful. Having great documentation for developers and, and as a focused sort of user group also likely has internal benefits, right? Th that the internal team can then go and reference because the documentation has just fundamentally gotten better because internal people, especially as the company grows and, and more people are added to the team, is that something that's that's highly valued and sort of respected? The fact that the really good and improving external documentation is also an internal asset? Yes. And I think my team's done a good job of showing that. So there's really two impacts internally. One, all of our implementation team that's doing integrations with merchants can access this documentation and get those merchants live faster. And then merchants who are doing the integration themselves, often like smaller and medium-sized merchants, they're doing it themselves, don't have to call us. They don't have to reach out and say, hey, this isn't working because the documentation just walks them right through it and they're already live. So we can save time on both the bigger integrations where we're much more actively involved because everything's documented and also on smaller and medium-sized merchants, they don't have to call, which makes it a lot easier for everyone. When when you're thinking about a challenge or you're just sort of digging into product management, you know, best practices and principles, where do you turn? Where do you go? What do you pay attention to? Oh, that's a good question. I'd say when I first started, I read all the books. All the books. <laughs> all the like books I could find recommended on Twitter and was very... I very strictly adhered to what I read in the books because I didn't have a lot of my own experience to go off of. Um, I'd say now I play it much more fast and loose. And oh. Like just kind of wing it sometimes. But also just the product people I work with at Klarna, they come from all kinds of cool places they worked at before. They're in a bunch of different countries and have worked at all these different places. And they're often working on teams completely unrelated to my team and they're doing something completely different. But it's great to reach out and say, here's what I'm dealing with. What would you do? And that's probably my go-to source at this point is my fellow Klarnauts 
as as they're called. Oh, <laughs> and so you started out being very much of of um, grounded in in um, sort of academic process from all the books, and then a year goes by and you know it all, and then you start to play it fast and loose, and you burned all the books, right? Yeah, in, basically in effigy <laughs> behind you. Yeah, it's that's also funny how. Um, that happens when we sort of learn something new and go into a new in- endeavor. You know, we we, we want to consume all that we can at the beginning. And then when we think that, you know, we've got it all figured out, then, then we don't need those reference materials anymore. <laughs> we just go fast and loose. Uh, yeah. Right. Not sure I have it all figured out, but I'm more confident that I can, like, I trust my own experience more. Mm-hmm. I think when I first started, I really had this, I don't know, imposter syndrome of, all of the projects I've done up to this point have been a fluke. I have no idea what I'm doing. I must read this book and have it tell me what to do because clearly I've just, they've all been flukes up to this point. So that took me a while to kind of trust that, hey, probably they weren't all flukes, all of the projects. Some probably were, but they weren't all flukes. And I can trust that I've seen this problem before. Yep. Um, and I know what worked and didn't work last time I can learn from it and kind of move forward. Um, whereas when I first got into the industry, I think I was much more hesitant to trust my experience. Why do you think that is? And how can people sort of progress faster or, or is it just a sort of a natural evolution and progression that, you know, at the beginning, we all in any endeavor and any sort of craft, we all have a little bit of imposter syndrome for a while until we develop that sort of that backlog of experience that we can then call on to say, yeah, I've seen this before. And I sort of know generally how to handle this and approach it. Yeah. I think one is just natural to kind of figure things out as it's new, but I came from such a, a traditional academic background where like I wanted to go to medical school and you have to do all these things. And at the end they call you doctor and then you're legit and you can go do the doctor things, but you've like checked all these boxes first. Right. And when I worked with PhDs in their lab, they were the principal person. They decided what we were studying and what we would do in the process and everything. And I didn't, it wasn't my place to question it because that's just not how the hierarchy of the academic world works. Right. Um, So that's where I came from. And so when I joined this like wild west technology thing where the Zuckerbergs of the world are like heralded for like not listening to their elders. It was very wild to me and I was quite hesitant to question anyone. Like I didn't I didn't have the credentials. Like I didn't pass the MCAT and like have my MD and all of that stuff. Um, I didn't feel like I had any paperwork to prove that I should be in the room and making decisions. Right. So I think I really just, I needed to read the books because they knew what they were doing. They had the paperwork. But then eventually I think I figured out that no one knows what they're doing and it's all new. So you, it, it was much more even playing field than I was aware of. The people that write books, because, and I was talking with about this with somebody a couple of weeks ago. And they asked me what I, I thought of a person that that's you know um, you know written like five or six books, and my comment was, well, they've gotten really good at being in the book production marketing business, and is what they have to say of any value and interest, maybe, but also maybe not. Maybe they've just got really good at producing and and marketing books. And so I think that, that people that write books, by and large, just have the, the courage 
to put pen to paper and to put something out into the into the world for others to consume i'm not sure that they actually know anything more than anybody that that didn't write a book who's got similar experiences yeah and so it but it is it's um it is this weird sort of dynamic right that that if you it's also true with people that that you know give presentations and give speeches and keynotes, et cetera. Do those people really know more about that subject than anybody else? Probably not. There's probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of other people that have the same level of expertise. They're just the ones that sort of took the initiative to say, I'm going to get up on a stage and talk about this. Yeah. And that took me a while to see that the value in reading the books and going to the talks and things was just in hearing about other people's experiences so you just have a larger library of experience to pull from on projects you didn't work on. Well, I think when I first joined the industry, I saw everyone as like an expert and I should do exactly what they did because they were successful. But now I see it much more as like, oh, here's all these things this person did that I've never done before. What happened and what did they learn? And then I take what I need from it. Right. Yep. That's the right way to approach it. So what do you think that we mostly get right in this, the time that we're now around products and what do we mostly get wrong? I'm, I'm anti rules in all parts of my life. <laughs> I don't, I don't like structure and I don't. Me too, by the way. I'm yeah. like very opposed to it, deeply like opposed to it. So I think all of the structure, I think there are a lot of people too into structure and too into process and that it just doesn't make sense like my team at Klarna is now four people and we still have to have on our calendar a weekly retro and a weekly planning meeting even though we don't really do weekly sprints we're iterating much faster than that right so it's on our calendars they're just more meetings to talk about the iterations we don't really follow it I hope all the Klarna people listen and know that my calendar is a lie but I think there's this this idea that teams that have retros every week are successful. And that might be true, but I don't think you have to have a weekly retro. It's good to look back and see what worked and what didn't. Uh, but every single week and to have weekly sprints. Meh. So what did, what is it about your background and your makeup that you, you don't like rules? <laughs> oh man, that's probably like really deep some like deep thing I should be in therapy for but um I don't know I think and do you think it makes you a better do you think it makes you a better product person and specifically to build products for developers I like to think it does <laughs> um I guess I can't confirm that it does but I like to think it does I I think I don't know just growing up there's all sorts of rules here told. And it's like, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will be successful. And I think up to the age of like, so you like, so you like the posts that come out like on LinkedIn and other ones that say, if you just do these five things every morning, yeah. you will be as successful as Oprah. Yes. I hate those. Yeah. Okay. Because good over and over again, you do X, Y, and Z and you're not Oprah. <laughs> and it's crazy to me. Weird. Right. So yeah, I, Following the rules and not following the rules, I feel like the success rate eh, is probably about the same. Um, but by not following the rules, I came up with them and I can learn from them and kind of alter the rules. So when I encounter the same thing again, which may not happen, but if I do encounter it again, I know it works for me and I can 
take like accountability for it much more than like, well, I read Oprah's book and it didn't work. So now what? Where I'd rather just like look at a problem, think through it. Like if I didn't read any of the books, what would I have done? And then I generally do that thing and it's worked enough times that I still do it. So, (laughs) yeah, I think product is is a craft and a discipline that is now, you know, taking off because we now sort of understand it and we know we now know that being bad at product is fatal. It probably always has been. We just didn't know what to call it, right? Yes. But I also think that as we are want to do is as a species, we get to the point where there is well, much like us you know, having this conversation, I guess. Um, So I'm going to be retrospective as part of it, that there's now a shit ton of product advice, guidance, blogs, newsletters, sites, conferences, all across the discipline of products. And it seems like we are now maybe getting to the point of over contented around product and product management. And so, and, and, maybe that means that we've hit a maturity level and an evolution around it that is good and positive and and that we didn't pri- you know previously have that sort of recognition of the value of of product and product management but now it seems like maybe we're getting a little bit saturated and it's becoming a little overplayed as most things sort of g- cross the bell curve and get onto the the side of oh holy shit you know we actually don't need another co-working space and we don't need, you know, um, another piece of content or another blog and somebody else talking about product. Yeah. I didn't really, I don't know if I had a question there as much as a rant, but I'm, I'm with you. I'm with okay. you on it. Yeah. Um, and so I, you know, how do we now sort of uh, direct that and how does someone sort of sift through, I guess I'm going to get to the question. How does someone sift through all of the, the menagerie of stuff out there around product to now be able to know, you know, what makes sense for them to consume and and how to use it, given the fact that we're now inundated by a lot of stuff on product. Yeah. I guess I can only speak for my experience. Yeah, what works for Um, you. Like, my parents have no idea what I do. Like, they don't know what my job is, which is fine. Um, They're they're probably still hoping you're going to go back to medical school. Yeah, I don't know. But I just tell them, like, I'm a professional problem solver. Klarna pays to use my brain to solve their problems. And that's how I approach product management. The problems we're solving aren't necessarily unique to product management. It's just a human thing. How do we get people to work together? How do I get this person to give us content for the website or like whatever it is? It's just problem solving. And there's a lot of content and frameworks for how you should go about solving these problems. But really, you just have to solve them. If following all the agile rules and making Jira tickets with all the acceptance criteria and user stories and everything helps you solve the problem and you have a huge engineering team, then do it. But if it's just like winging it also solves the problem, do that. And there's constraints, of course, but yeah, I really just see myself as like a brain on loan to Klarna to solve problems. I'm in the developer experience space So I'm solving those developers problems and that's just what I'm there to do. I don't even, I don't identify that strongly as a product manager. 
I mean, I know that's what I do, and like I generally do what other. Hey, wait a second! We're doing do. a pro- we're doing a podcast on product, and now you don't identify, identify I as a product person. I, I, this has all been this. I've, I've been totally manipulated. This has been a total ruse from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, are you I'm, really a bartender? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, you caught me. But like, I don't. I I go to product conferences. I'm like, when I'm talking to people in the industry, I say I'm in product, so I identify like decently with product <laughs> but um on the like grand scheme of things i'm a person that solves problems that happens to be in technology and i don't write code so i'm in product <laughs> yeah it's um it's an interesting way to look at it and i've always thought because you know ultimately i'm you know um not that smart <laughs> and so i take things and i try to boil them down to the the most the the least common denominator in the simplest sort of form and when I think about product, I think about, well, what's the most common sense way to so, sort of go about building a good product? And that is to build the most simple, elegant thing that you can that solves a problem that people care about and value enough to be willing to pay for it. And I think there's one, and I've got one principle sort of underneath that, that is just common sense, but um, it's violated all the time, which is get and stay close to your users. And it's amazing to me how hard that is for companies and and product teams and people who are in product to get and stay close to their users. And I feel ridiculous getting up at conferences and saying that and giving talks on it because it's, um, it, it sounds ridiculous to say, get and stay close to your users. But we have to be reminded of that because our egos and the fact that we have these processes and all these tools, they sort of are things that insulate us from our users. And so I think that oftentimes the process and methodologies and all those kinds of things become these weird crutches that actually are inhibitors to doing the common sense, basic principles that make the difference between it working and not working. Yeah. You can't see the forest for the trees kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and ultimately it's, um, you know, do the users value what you've given them or don't they? And if they don't, then you probably didn't stay close enough to them and you, you know, maybe overbuilt, you know, and all the things that, that we are sort of want to do as, as people and teams. And much of that is present, prevented if you just get and stay close to users. And the reality is that's what the lean startup and the lean product playbook and all of the the books and all of the things out there really say is get close to users, iterate fast, and make sure that you're that you're driving something of value for them. The rest of it is sort of all you know bullshit that we put in place to make ourselves to give us guardrails to ensure that that happens. And then the irony of it is those guardrails that we put in place to ensure that it happens often are the things that prevent it from happening. Yeah. Yeah. We, I guess for our team, if we had spent all this time making Jira tickets and worrying about how to build things, like I get questions all the time on how certain things work or whatever. And sometimes I don't know, like the new version of the website doesn't use JavaScript. I didn't know that till like last week, but there you go. And that was a decision they made. But the only constraints I put on the engineering team was like, here's the problems we need to solve for the developers. We need to put this in the navigation. It needs to look like Klarna, that sort of stuff. So they ticked all those boxes, and I just don't care about that other stuff. It doesn't really impact things. The JavaScript thing might impact SEO, 
but the technology decisions I'm just not quite like I'm just not as excited about because our users don't really care like right. how the content gets to them just that it does yeah well I, you're, you're focused on what provides the most value exactly right yeah and I think other product people I've talked to get really wrapped up in the how things happen and that can be kind of a trap right it doesn't really matter how <laughs> just that it gets there just that the information that needs to be there gets there and that that app or whatever does what it needs to do whatever yeah so one final question if you uh, weren't a product person now and your brain was being applied to something else what would the something else be oh man if i'm not a product manager You're not a product person I'm probably doing something with neuroscience, working in a lab somewhere. I'm like, I mean, I'd probably end up in technology anyway with some sort of like brain computer interface research stuff is like fascinating. And I like think it would be really cool. So I'd probably work my way back into a similar setup, uh, but probably more research focused. Yeah, that's probably where I'd be. Yeah. Cool. Or bartending, I don't know. <laughs> which, which I mean, you're already doing right now. So let's not yeah, pretend yeah. like you'd you'd be going, you'd be transitioning to that, yeah. um, right? But I appreciate you pretending to be in a product person um, and taking a break from your bar bartending gig to come yeah. and do this. Took the day off again. Thank you for doing it. It's been Jama Levengood from Klarna, who works on building products for developers that uh, help plug Klarna products into e-commerce sites and, and online merchants. Thanks again for joining me. This is Ryan Frederick from AWH. See you next time. Need some help with product? AWH is a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm here to help you create great digital products. Check out www.awh.net or follow us on Twitter at AWHnet to learn more.